Um, yeah, thank you. Maybe about halfway for each one on the top. Yeah. Like it, uh, you can always wear your name tag on Buddhist Studies nights. If you don't have one, we can make you one, or you can uh, just use a, you know, one of those sticky pieces of paper. We have those on the shelf in the community room. And it's especially nice on the nights where we have the small groups, so that uh, people will slowly learn each other's names. Before I get started, I wanted just to see if there's any nuts and bolts questions about the course that people have. So the meditation, and you can experiment with this at home this week as part of your home study, is uh, is challenge the mind, you know, the in this relative, on this relative level, right view, basic wisdom in a Buddhist sense, is really about um, appreciating, respecting, and uh, caring enough about it to dig into it, this law of cause and effect. And it's different than feeling helpless or feeling or believing that the world's too complicated, too mysterious, but it's a different approach. So again, on a relative level, conventional level, we just uh, start appreciating that things happen lawfully, conditionally, and I'm operating, I'm already operating in this world. I'm already, by nature of what I think and what I do and what I say, I'm already part of how things are unfolding, this lawful unfolding. And so in a way we're making a science of it, or maybe that's maybe a better word, like a craft of it. Like a gardener. You know, we're we're learning to participate. As a gardener, we don't control everything. There's the weather we don't actually control much of, and we've got the soil we began with and and all the different forces at play. But it's also not insignificant what we do as a gardener. And it's the same thing with our life in terms of karma. We, how we, uh, what we think, what we do, how we view things, those are all significant inputs. So karma generally means action, and more specifically in terms of our study, it means intentional action with the implication that intentional actions are relevant, they're significant, because they're consequences. And it doesn't really matter whether we're aware of the consequences or we're aware of that there are intentions. There will be consequences, there will be affecting things regardless. But as a person, as a human being that 
cares about this life, cares about others, we have every reason to be interested in how it all works. So I, I said earlier that you know karma really is the Buddhist teachings. You know, in a way, the Buddha, in order to do his job to um, articulate the way that it is, he had to articulate that both in a conventional sense, from the point of view of a deluded human being. How is it? You know, how to describe it? And then also from the point of view of an awakened heart or an awakened mind, how is it? So he did both. And it's confusing because some of the teachings are really coming from that conventional point of view. And some of the teachings are coming from that ultimate point of view. And it can seem almost contradictory at times. So it's useful uh, the way we paired it up. And I'm not sure. My guess is we'll do dependent origination in the winter as the winter course. But we might start it in the fall. We'll just see how things go. But in a way, these two belong together because the teachings on karma is really looking at cause and effect from a personal point of view. Like what I think matters because there are consequences to what I'm doing with my mind or how I'm viewing things. There are consequences for me as an individual. That's a relative point of view. The absolute or the ultimate point of view where dependent origination takes us as a teaching model is, yeah, things are conditional, but the conditional unfolding of things don't refer back to anybody. So there is karma. There are consequences to actions. But that those consequences don't refer back to anybody. Or as in uh, the Path of Purification, this important text written several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, Buddha Gosa, the author, says something like, suffering there is, but no sufferer can be found. There is doing, but no doer can be found. So that's the ultimate point of view. doesn't negate karma, which sometimes people get confused about. You know, they, they have some insight or some at least intellectual understanding of emptiness. No, not being a center anywhere, not being a permanent self anywhere. And they think, well, therefore, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm not really here like I think I am. So why not just take what I want, say what I want to say? And it's a misunderstanding. So part of what we're doing in this class is, uh, and especially with the next class on dependent origination, we're learning to exist in both worlds and see that they're not, they don't contradict each other. A deepening understanding of emptiness doesn't in any way contradict a, a deep respect for karma, for the consequences of our actions, of thought, word, and deed. And having a lot of respect for action doesn't in any way limit us from opening to emptiness. Like from a point of view of emptiness, who has a problem being really attentive to karma, to cause and effect? Right? You know, it's like 
it's a misunderstanding of emptiness to think that, oh, I don't, I mean, in a way, you know, I don't have to be responsible, but I don't have to not be responsible either. So to think that, oh, I don't have to be responsible now is a self-centered stance because I understand emptiness, because I had an experience where there didn't seem to be a self here. I guess I don't have to be responsible, but who would even want to not be responsible? Why not be responsible for the consequences? Why not live in a way that doesn't harm anybody? Who would have a problem with that attentiveness to karma? Like the great, one of the great Buddhist saints, Padmasasambhava, who, one of the people who brought Buddhism to Tibet a long time ago, of course, and he had this wonderful line that's often repeated. Although my view, I keep to my Wisdom is as vast as the sky. My attention to karma, to the law of cause and effect, is as, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. If you've ever felt just even wheat flour, but some of the flowers, you know, so smooth that the grains are so small. It's a really nice metaphor, isn't it, Mike? That's how much he, you know, according to what he's saying, he'd be interested in attending to the details of cause and effect. Like, when my mind is doing this, when my mind is dwelling in this way, when my mind is complaining in this way, judging in this way, expressing neediness in this way, this is the consequence. This is what gets set in motion. And this is really useful because generally, you know, just the way our minds are conditioned, we... We tend towards one or the other. Like some of us really like that, you know, in the way that we study and the way that we manage our relationships and manage our homes, very detail-oriented. And we find a certain security in being in touch with as many details, investigating, analyzing, looking at cause and effect. And, of course, we can get really tight without wisdom. You can get, that can get really tight and oppressive, certainly tight and oppressive to be around. And then other people have the personality where they just don't want to deal with the details. They want you know, the more conceptual, global, and they just like the big ideas. They figure somebody else, some peon, will take care of the details. I'm the big picture person. And the thing is, you know, that also stinks because that... That's an expression like a fear or an aversion of details, of getting into the messy details, of really looking carefully and having enough respect for the messiness and unworkableness of life, of the world, having enough respect to do our best even though we'll never master all the details of karma. We'll never, you know, when you're having a conversation with somebody even though it matters what you say, you'll never be so on top of it, of all the details, to never make a mistake. You know, it's just not possible. The Buddha, you know, as a metaphor of somebody with a lot of wisdom, you know, he made mistakes too. Although, in tradition, you know, they often refer to him as the all-perfect one or... But, you know, there are examples in the teachings where, like one that's coming to mind now, is uh, he was giving a lot of teachings on uh, reflecting on 
the limitations of the body, the unbeautiful, non-beautiful qualities of the body, to sort of break the attachment we tend to have for our physical bodies. And then also, you know, like uh, contemplating a body after it's died and just the decomp- uh, decomposition of the body. And so he, he gave these instructions to some of, the, some of his students and then he went away for a while and he came back and he asked some of the senior monks, why is the Sangha, the community, so much smaller than when I left, before I left? And uh, it's funny, but it's not so funny because uh, as the story goes, well, the, the senior monks that stayed said, well, some of them you know, got frustrated and left and some of them committed suicide. And evidently, the, you know, the Buddha changed how he taught at that point. You know, he used more mindfulness of breathing as an instruction and other contemplations that uh, people could use skillfully. The other story that comes to mind is, you know, just showing the Buddha learning. The first person the Buddha met after his deep insight, uh, the person uh, sort of taken aback by the Buddha's calm and beautiful radiance and said something like, you know, who are you? (laughs) And the Buddha just sort of answered him very directly, you know, because from an awakened point of view, that's a very interesting question. Who are you? You know, because the normal designations don't really make sense. So the Buddha spoke in a very direct way, you know, the all-knowing, the all-seeing, the... And uh, it's very funny how it's written in the, in the discourses. It says, I forget exactly how the guy says it, but he says something like, mm, well, maybe it's true. And it says that then he left by another path. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but this is a little intense, a little weird. So I'm out of here. <laughs> and so it probably that interaction with the Buddha probably wasn't that useful for that person. I mean, at least as it's conveyed in the tradition, in the discourse. And then, you know, he had several days as he was wandering to catch up with some of his previous uh, colleagues to reflect about how he might present what had happened to him, what he had come to understand. And he was much more effective the second time around. So this is, this is the point of karma. It's really about, uh, on this relative level, we're a student of cause and effect. Because, as I mentioned right at the beginning, all day long we're either contaminating or adding something beautiful to the soup. You know, just our presence, even if our mouth is zipped and we're sitting relatively still, we're adding something. And so, instead of neurotically worrying about what we're adding, we're we're much more clinical, just like we're looking directly and experimenting. Well, let me try a different attitude. Let me say it differently. Let me move about differently and see what that sets in motion for myself and for others. So this, you know, using life and uh, it's really actually on this relative level, it's so liberating because, and again, just on an ordinary conventional I'm a guy who wants to be happy level, it's so liberating because it's as if we've uncovered the owner's manual for life. You know how it is when you have one of those electronic devices and you can't find, nowadays you can of course just go to the internet and 
track down the owner's manual, but it used to be where if you lost it, you know, that was it. There's nowhere you could, unless you sort of tracked down the company and called them up and asked them to send you out something. But when we understand how karma works, it's like, oh, this is how this, this is like how this mind and body works. And that's what I try to convey in the guided sit tonight is, you know, like just in terms of using the, the Buddhist model where we have three unwholesome roots and three wholesome roots. So this is the easiest way to understand skillful and unskillful. And that just means like what leads to ease and happiness and what leads to agitation and stress. So the three unwholesome roots, when the mind is coming out of greediness, craving, aversion, and delusion, disconnection, then agitation and stressful states get set in motion. And when the mind is relating with non-greed, not aversion, non-delusion, then we're setting in motion peace. So in the sit tonight, you can come back to this through the, in the days ahead. You know, just to, again, directly experiment. See if you can practice coming out of non-greed, non-delusion, non-aversion. So to be relating to something like tonight we worked with the body, different places in the body, and really just practice relating to the throat with non-aversion, with kindness, relating with non-craving, with generosity or contentment, contentedness, relating with non-delusion, which is that uh, clarity, that being intimate, seeing it as it is. And does it actually feel good immediately? Does it lead to peaceful, happy states? Or not? And if it doesn't, instead of just immediately assuming the Buddha was wrong, then to sort of, well, checking, like a good scientist. Remember when, uh, when was that, maybe three months ago, and the big collider, and is it in Switzerland or northern Italy? And they, what did they call it, a new particle, or what is it called? The yeah, that. <laughs> anyway, so they they did a number of studies or, you know, ran the thing and they got these results. And the first thing they did is they checked to make sure it wasn't some sort of quirk because, you know, the hardware, the software, software wasn't right. So they, they didn't immediately believe the results. So there you are cultivating the three wholesome roots of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion and you still feel really tight and your heart feels really closed, don't just assume, check your practice. Was I really, with some continuity, some wholeheartedness, coming out of non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion for a period of time or not? Because it's very easy to be mistaken where we're like practicing non-aversion with a lot of greed, a lot of expectation. I'm going to get something good. But that's not non-aversion. That's greed. Like wanting the peaceful state. Wanting the ease of the body. This is something that experienced meditators learn very well. Just like in, in general, in daily life, we're constantly betrayed because we think we know how life works. And then we act on that and we get rejected. You know, think about when you were a teenager and you wanted somebody to like you and you thought, I'll say this or I'll act in this way. 
and it didn't work. <laughs> and we feel betrayed because we thought that would work. And we didn't really understand the mechanics carefully enough. And it's the same thing with working with our mind. And so many meditators, they think they know where peace is. They think they know where they can get that nice mind state, that beautiful ease of the body and mind. And they end up getting frustrated because they're not looking carefully enough. They're sort of right in the sense that they know what they want, but they've forgotten how to get it. And this is the basic mistake we make all the time. This is the first lesson that karma teaches, teaches us. Wanting something is not the cause for it to arise. Wanting to have a lot of money doesn't lead to having a lot of money. Wanting a peaceful mind does not lead to a peaceful mind. What leads to a peaceful mind is understanding karma, cause and effect. Actions have consequences. Well, what actions have the consequence of peace? What actions have the consequence of agitation? Feelings of alienation. Wanting something and being afraid of something is a cause for agitation. And giving up and being disconnected is a cause for agitation. When we really get that in our bones, then we could say we become a real student of the path. So we still don't know what we're doing, but we know what doesn't work. Or at least we're beginning to know what doesn't work. Sitting here and wanting something to happen, sitting here and being afraid of something happening or being afraid that something won't happen, or just wanting to give up, disconnect, get distracted, None of those lead to happiness. And then it just, you see how it begs the question, well, I wonder what does lead to happiness? What does lead to a, a real feeling of love and compassion, a healing kind of love and compassion? What does lead to a sense of belonging in this moment? And even if we don't have anybody pointing, like we don't have the Buddhist teachings to sort of give us some suggestions, even through trial and error, we'll learn a lot. And in some ways, better, it's better learning anyway that way. Because then we're in that mode, you know, in the direction of self-reliance. We really have to, you know, it's not enough for somebody, even somebody with a lot of wisdom, a lot of skill, it's, it's not enough for them to sort of give us directions or give us instructions. It only really is useful when we've seen directly cause and effect. Because then the mind, in a sense, becomes, to some degree at least, unshakable. Like, I know this is true because I saw it. Like, so, for example, tonight, if you had some, if you got some momentum where you were relating to some of the different body parts, really coming from one of those wholesome roots with some continuity, and you really felt the whole system begin to relax. The mind, the body, started to feel more easeful, more whole, less tight, constricted. And then, then we know, one, first thing we know is that that state is possible. Which for some people, 
if it's been a while, we can forget. We can just think life is always tight, that fear always dominates the mind, or neediness always dominates the mind, sense of aloneness always dominates the mind. So one of the first things we realize is, oh, this other kind of heart or mind is possible. And the other thing, if we were paying attention, we'll connect the dots and we'll see this effort were part of the causes and conditions leading to this result. Oh. And when we really make that connection, we feel enlivened. There's a kind of enlivening gratitude. We're so grateful to have a sense of how the mind works. Because one of the things that's so debilitating for us is when we're encountering a lot of uh, overwhelming, negative oppressive states of mind, states of heart. And it seems like everything we do just makes it worse. And so that's that helpless feeling, you know, that we've all encountered to some degree at times. And it can be, you know, it can be quite debilitating. Everything we do to get out of our negative state seems to be reinforcing it. And that's when we really feel betrayed by life. Like it's been a real setup. What's what's a human being to do except give up? Giving up seems to be the most rational thing because it appears that life doesn't make sense, doesn't isn't rational. Some of you know I used to way back when used to be a classroom teacher, and one of the hardest things, especially uh, you know with first, second, third, fourth graders, people who <coughs> don't organically learn to read and then uh, because once you start depending on the secondary strategies for learning to read it's like really inefficient the most efficient way to read is like how you learn to speak the language you're just immersed in it and it just kind of happens without you kind of knowing how you learn to read you know you didn't learn to read because you've got all these decoding skills and you know how to sound out words, and you know how to... No, you just sort of learn to read. And, uh, you know, and a certain percentage of people just learn to read, especially those who were immersed in a lot of reading activities when they're young. Parents are reading to them all the time, books are around, and any kind of imitation of reading is reinforced. Oh, look at Sally's reading. But once kids miss that, and now they're in second or third grade... And now there's this terrible stigma about not being able to read. And so the teachers and the parents and the kids are grasping, pushing these secondary strategies, decoding strategies and other, uh, basically breaking the code. But the thing is, it's very complicated. (laughs) It's not like it's all very lawful how reading works. And, And besides, these are young kids. And generally, they're young kids who are already having some trouble learning, you know, so they have confidence problems. They already think they're not going to get it. And the thing is, if you think you're going to get it, and then you get burned, that really hurts. But if you don't think you're going to get it, and you don't get it, it doesn't hurt as much. So it becomes harder and harder. And this is a little bit how it is with karma, when we get this feeling like life happens, but we don't really happiness and unhappiness happen but we don't really understand how it happens or why it's happening 
we get discouraged and we begin to feel helpless and we begin to feel like it's okay to just sort of randomly attempt to be happy or just grab at anything that approximates happiness or just try it, you know, and see if it delivers. Sort of trial and error, but not, not sort of learning from past events. Keep going to the same place, getting the same results, but we don't know what else to do, so we keep going to the same place, getting the same results. I mean, think about addictive behaviors. Those people want to be happy, but why, you know, from the outside, it looks like they're crazy doing that over and over again. Don't they know? But from their point of view, this is what makes sense. So part of what we're learning with karma is that it's lawful. And this is enlivening. When we see that happiness is a lawful arising and that unhappiness is a lawful arising, and begin to kind of get the sense of the lay of the land. Oh, I get how reading works. Oh, I get how to fit in. You know, remember the different crowds you wanted to fit in and how weird and awkward and uncomfortable it was for a while? And then after a while, you sort of figured out how to fit in. Like what was okay to say, what wasn't okay to say, how I'm supposed to dress, what I shouldn't be wearing. I... I had a really unpleasant experience. I, some of you know, I, I ended up through a quirky set of circumstances uh, getting a scholarship to go to an East Coast prep school. Uh, so I spent freshman year uh, in Henry High in North Minneapolis, and then sophomore year through senior year, I went to Deerfield Academy out in Massachusetts. Uh, at the time, it was an all-boys school, and uh, completely different world. I mean people with a lot, a lot of wealth, and, uh, and I was just kind of an ordinary kid from North Minneapolis, and uh, I brought a few sort of silly toys with me, um, just sort of knickknacks to put on my shelf, that were just like so not in the culture, <laughs> and I also remember, I mean it's like very preppy, and I also remember like before I really got the lay of the land, I went to one of those shoe stores, like my first, I think it was, I was there for a semester and I was back for Christmas my sophomore year. And I, that is in the early 70s. And I bought one of those patent leather shoes with, you know, remember the guys had little heels on their shoes? You know, even now I feel some shame. <laughs> and I, I might have worn them once or twice here in Minneapolis. But it was just like so obvious like how off my mind was, like how I didn't get the lay of the land. Like, you don't wear shoes like this here. And I never did, you know. And I wasn't wealthy, and I paid for those shoes myself. And uh, but I never wore them. <laughs> so anyway, just it's like uh, this basic intelligence of just understanding the world we live in. And karma is that. Even in these really basic ways, like if I wear shoes like that, this is how people relate to me. That's karma. I just sort of getting that. So this is what I mean. This is relative wisdom. This is like will help us be happy in an ordinary sense, fit in, get what we want in an ordinary sense, because we'll be studying life and what leads to what. And 
if we just sort of bring in, well, I really want to be just happy. I want to be at ease. Well, the whole thing sort of refines itself. So it's important not to immediately impose noble ambitions. But just to begin where we are, but to want what we actually want. And work with karma on that level. You know, I'd like my relationship with my partner to work a little better. So I'll, like, maybe you'll take that up as a study. And just really watch what your mind is thinking, what your mouth is speaking, and what actions you're doing, and see what gets set in motion. Just looking at cause and effect. And really owning it. It's sort of like submitting to that teacher. Like, that's the law. That's how it is. It's like, it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit your theories. If you see, if you start to see cause and effect, then we submit to it. Oh, this seems to be how it works. And it's not like we stop looking. We keep watching. We keep observing cause and effect. But we let it make an impact on us. Let it in. There's a uh, powerful story that Kamala Masters uh, teaches about a time when Menindadri, her teacher, um, one of her teachers, was visiting, staying at her place, and Kamala was with a previous husband, not Steve Armstrong, her current husband, and uh, she had some children living at home at the time, and so there they, she was with her beloved Dharma teacher at the dinner table and her husband and kids. And her husband and daughter uh, started to have a full-blown fight. And uh, at some point, the daughter gets up and runs from the table, screaming at her dad, and goes to her bedroom and slams the door. And then the husband, who's totally infuriated by her, his daughter's you know, disrespect, especially with probably a guest there, storms after her, and I forget exactly whether he was banging on the door or trying to get the door open or something. And evidently, at that point, Menidjadri, Kamala's teacher, he put his hand on her arm and said, it's the law. <laughs> like, cause and effect. This is how it is. That right now, the important thing to do is to see cause and effect. That given everything that's happened, it can't be other than what it is right now. This isn't a mistake. This is the law. And that's what we want to see as we move through life and we feel like it's not the way we want it to be. My mind isn't the way I want it to be. My circumstances aren't the way they want it to be. What we want to say is not like, oh, poor me, or this isn't fair. Or We want to say, this is the law. The way it is right now, the way my body is, the way my mind is, the way the world is, this is the law. It has arisen lawfully due to causes and conditions. This is not a mistake. Now, that doesn't mean we should like it or that it's pleasant. So if you're in the middle of some really difficult circumstances, when you acknowledge yourself this is the law, it doesn't mean you're trying to convince yourself that this is your preference. You want it this way. You don't have to want it to be this way. But it is this way, and you're, you're practicing seeing this as a natural, lawful arising. Given all the innumerable causes, many of which we could never 
understand because they're so subtle or they're we're just not in the vicinity to see the causes. But we can be sure, having studied life carefully, that there are causes that make this the way that it is right now. So it's not a mistake. It's the law. And we can appreciate, okay, given that this is the law, and given that it's always the law, what should I be doing now to participate in this lawful world? What can I be doing right now with my mind in particular? The view of the mind, the attitude of the mind, so that I'm fully, wholeheartedly participating in this lawful world with intelligence as a learning creature. Now, that's, that's the neat thing about learning. It's an exponential function. Wisdom is an exponential function. Once we... The Buddha calls karma, by the way, the light of the world. And the reason he calls it the light of the world is once we understand, it doesn't matter how ignorant we are. Once we understand this law of cause and effect and start to respect it, to pay attention to it, we just start learning. And every time we learn something about cause and effect, then the next moment of learning is a sort of where the quality of the learning, the subtlety of the learning is more profound. So the depth of what's received from that study, so it's not like a linear function. It's an exponential function. We may initially understand like, uh, you know, how to make money, you know, how to handle money so we don't always end up in debt or something like that as nice, as powerful as that is. But all of the lessons we learn in these more gross places in life, they just lead us to the more subtle understandings of karma. And just to give us a little window into the next course, Independent Origination, we're really seeing that the most profound karma action, you know, attitude, the thing that we're adding to the moment, is to add absolutely nothing to the moment. That doesn't mean non-action, by the way. It means not adding, not intentionally trying to make things different. But you're not stopping the mind and body, but you're not intending. This is uh, a kind of freedom. Sort of the end of karma is to understanding how to be in the world of karma without identifying with any aspect of karma. We'll get there, you know, a little bit maybe in this course and then more in the next course. But just to give a little window to that. So here's Ajahn Sumedho talking about karma in a really basic way, just understanding this cause and effect. He says, this is in his book, Mind in the Way, we should keep in mind the fact that we'll have to remember whatever we do. If we do bad things, then we'll have bad memories. If we do good things, we'll have good memories. It's as simple as that. So it doesn't matter if nobody sees us because we're aware of what we're doing. And so if we're doing something from a contracted place, like anger or greed or giving up, disconnection, then 
that is making an imprint in the mind. Whether you're sort of conscious of it in that moment doesn't matter. It's making an imprint of the mind. We'll remember. We don't really ever forget anything. We may not be able to consciously access, you know, that stereotype of remembering being born. Some people can evidently remember that. But we're, we've been a sensitive creature from day one. Or maybe, you know, day, you know, nine months. Who knows? But at some point, maybe even before, maybe it never stops, the sensitivity. So in a way, we have access to everything. And when we're acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it's making an imprint. It's having an effect on the heart, on the mind. And when we're relating with non-greed, non-delusion, non-aversion, it's having an effect. It's having a loosening, untangling, liberating effect. This is the thing we don't like about karma. It feels a bit oppressive because it seems like a lot of work. Once we have a sense that it matters what we think, what we say, what we do, then we're not sure we like it. Oh, I've got to behave. I've got to pay attention. It feels oppressive. But it's just initially. And we're willing to have that initial weight, so to speak, because the alternative would be driving blindly through life, moving blindly through life. And, you know, we can set in motion so much suffering moving through life in a blind way. We see this a lot. We tend not to see, of course, when we're acting blindly, we tend not to notice. But it tends to stand out when we're around other people who are operating in a blind way. You know, where people are just making choices from very primitive points of view. And you can just see the writing on the wall. You see what they're setting in motion for themselves. You wish it weren't true but there's nothing you can do, or maybe there is, but you see that a lot as we observe other people. Even something simple, you you see somebody with a lot of road rage on the freeway, and you just know it's just a matter of time before they either cause a big accident or end up losing their partner because he or she can't handle their rage anymore or lose their job or you know, set some terrible thing in motion because of that particular pattern. So it feels oppressive. So we have to remember that, yeah, initially we're, we're understanding karma from a personal point of view. What I say, what I think, what I do matters. And it is oppressive. But we're willing to own that because the alternative would be to be blind and to be falling into one hole after another. And this is what we'll talk about next week, this place of that weight of being responsible and willing to take on the responsibility. That's what we call, most of you know this, the Pali terms are hiri otapa, wholesome concern and wholesome regret, where our past has taught us to be careful, honey, because you don't want to make mistakes. I feel that often in my relationship with Wynn, my wife, that, you know, sometimes I'm unskillful. And uh, later, uh, I'll, it will come to mind, like, uh, how crazy it, ha- it was to risk something that's so important, that I value so much. 
like, how could I be so stupid? So that that's not, you know, I could proliferate and really turn that into something like self-hatred, something unskillful. But part of that pain, like, how could I be so stupid? I want to be really careful not to do that in the future. That is gold. That's something, that concern, even though it exists as a, a kind of pain in the heart, it's not something we want to lose. We want to stay in touch with that. So that's that wholesome concern or that wholesome regret. It's like a, an ouch from the past, but instead of being neurotic, we've, we've turned that ouch into like a temple, a teacher. And it's like we were so grateful to have that lesson, in a sense, embedded in the body and mind. Like it's there, we can draw on it. You know, as whenever we're in the vicinity of that big mistake, we can draw on it like, honey, don't go there. You really don't want to go there. Remember this feeling? <laughs> That's a taste of what comes when you do that. You sure you want to do that? So we'll talk about that next week. But I'll leave it here. We have about ten minutes. Maybe some things have come up from my comments thus far or questions that you might have. And please, if you do speak up, say your name. What comes to mind? What has life taught you about karma? What's your understanding of karma? How you've worked with it? Questions you have? Yeah. Mirrors in modern physics. So, 
so there you are, neurotically, but in a wholesome way, observing cause and effect in your life. But you're taking it very personally, and you're observing it because you want your life to work better. But it's hard work, and it's a little oppressive, and it gets neurotic because you, you don't want to miss anything. But even not wanting to miss something makes you tight, and then you miss stuff. And So it begins to dawn on the mind, little gradual insights that the attitude or the view of the mind that's observing cause and effect really, really, really matters. And it actually turns out to be the most important cause. So it's not so important what I say to somebody, as important as that is. What's even more important is the mind that's observing that I'm saying this to this person. What is the nature of that mind? That sometimes that mind is viewing or coming out of a really self-centered place. So then that I'm saying this to that person, that reality is partly or completely maybe dependent on the view that's understanding it. So uh, the observer really matters. And what the observer is taking itself to be really matters in karma. It's another input in the whole conditional unfolding. So that may get to that universalization of the understanding of karma. That the way to be free in a karmic world, in a world where there is cause and effect, is to first and foremost respect the world because on this relative level, this is the law. But not to get stuck there, but to keep looking at the law of cause and effect because it's going to be begging the question of the observer or the, the one who's receiving the karma, the, the consequences of action. Like what that is, who that is, where that is. It's just going to beg that question. And the different views around that have a real karmic effect themselves. So then it turns out in the end that right view is the most profound karmic action a human being can take. And right view, as I suggested earlier, is not having a fixed view. Not having any fixed view is the best way to live in a karmic world. But like I said, we'll go there. But yeah, that's a good good way to bring that up. Yeah, Wendy. right there a real liberation because then the karma unfolds you do say something or don't but regardless that's karma not saying something saying something is karma but if you've opened up the door to non-attachment or emptiness then whatever you're still going to get the results in a sense you still have to experience them but if you're not taking the, the fruit of your karma personally It's not a problem. And 
and the learning it's like the that sort of purification of action of thought of words it happens all the better when we're not taking karma personally so it's not like we it doesn't matter it's not like we're going to stop refining the skillfulness of our actions and thoughts and words that will continue yeah yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's great. Yeah, I, I forgot your name. Katie. Katie. Yeah. So you told the story about um, Yeah, so that we can just use Wendy's example because there you are seeing somebody getting attacked or let's use Kamala sitting there at the table. You know, people can do really silly things in those moments like pretend it isn't happening, you know, have a conversation with the teacher as if that big gorilla in the room wasn't happening or who, or, you know, just, oh, that's just what they do. You know, something like that. Or get up and, you know, and scream at the husband to stop screaming at her daughter, his daughter, you know. So there's any number of responses, but when when the thought comes, you know, oh my God, this isn't fair, I don't want this to happen, what should I do? And then there can be just that turning in the mind, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do in the mind. And that's that sort of recognition that it matters what I do, and my intention is to be skillful, that much I know. And I also know I don't know, I don't necessarily know how to be skillful, even though my intention is to be skillful, not to cause harm. And then you just let things go from there. Like the action then, whatever you do or don't do to help the person who's getting robbed or to deal with the situation Kamala was faced with, then whatever it is, it's got wholesome roots. See, that's really the art of karma, is to let everything have wholesome roots not to be perfect. It's not about being perfect. It's about um, coming from a perfect place. Humility, the intention not to harm. It's not about actually not harming. It's about the intention not to harm. Because it's not easy to live a life and not harm other living beings. Even when we're really careful. Does that make sense? Yeah, mindfulness is that gap. I mean, you can use that phrase, you know, mindfulness as a gap. It's a, it seems to stop time. It doesn't really, but there's an awareness of how it is as things are constantly unfolding. And in that moment of awareness, it's like this. It makes all the difference in the world because it allows for a different view to enter in. The view of humility, the view of, of not wanting to harm, you know, 
And then our actions, whatever they are, however skillful or unskillful they will be, given all the dynamics, given that we're not seeing everything ever, but we'll be protected by the humility and the intention not to harm. And that will, that will take care of us. Maybe time for one more. Oh, actually it's 9 o'clock. I think we need to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds. Maybe take a breath or two together. reflect on the karma that's been set in motion through our interest in these teachings. It's like we've opened a door and we'll never be the same. I think I read somewhere today the Buddha said something like uh, two most important choices. One is to begin your practice and the other is to end it to bring it to the end so we can keep that in mind so thanks for joining the course everyone next week we'll have small groups exactly what we've been talking about you can just uh, share in your small groups really being interested uh, in that that sort of gap or that moment and I just want to put a plug in uh, Rita Gross will be here in two weeks Saturday the 29th doing a class on the Four Noble Truths uh, any of the experienced people in the community were looking for someone to host Rita that day. So if you're available and planning to come to that workshop and would like to introduce her, I'll be busy so I can't attend. Um, but to introduce her and just sort of kind of grease the wheel for that day, you can see me or Shelley uh, if you're interested in doing that. Any other announcements people have? It's our quarterly refuge and precept ceremony this Sunday at 1030, followed by the community potluck followed by our quarterly workday led by Casey. If you want to get involved, we're looking for both skilled laborers and not-so-skilled laborers to help out. So if you have any questions, you can talk with Casey about that. And uh, if you have time to bring the folder tiers down, that would be great. And Dave, did you get enough program hosts? There's one or two more folks. You want to host a couple nights? That would be great. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week.